Uh, so on uh, July 29th, I'll be teaching our baptism class. And I just want to strongly encourage you that if you haven't been baptized yet, or maybe you were baptized as an infant or you were baptized as a child, but you never really uh, kind of got the significance of what it meant to follow Christ, that you'll meet me there uh, on the 29th. There's uh, lunch and free childcare, So there's no excuses uh, of why you can't be there. And NFL football has not started by then, okay? Now, many of you are sitting there, and the reason why you're not going to get baptized is you think you're not good enough. Well, guess what? You're not. And I'm not either. No one is ever good enough to go down into those baptismal waters. But what the commitment is, is just saying, I'm going to follow Christ the best way I know how and let him be the leader of my life doesn't mean you have it all together, that you're perfect. It just means you know one uh, who can do that for you. So uh, if you haven't been baptized yet, right on your calendar right now, July 29th, and uh, it'll happen here at the conference uh, room. Our uh, youngest daughter, Shiloh, is three years old, and we have a nickname for her. We call her Shy Shy. And uh, recently, her favorite phrase these days is this, shy, shy, do it herself. (laughs) Shy, shy, do it herself. And if we try to do something for shy, shy, when shy, shy can do it herself, she gets a little bit offended. And... uh, For example, when she first learned how to walk, um, she often would crash into things. Part of that was because her head was in the 120th percentile, and so she had a really hard time kind of balancing it. She had a big head, kind of like her mom. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, but she did. She had a hard time kind of walking. And any time that she would fall down or crash and we'd try to intervene to try to help her out, she would say, shy, shy, do it herself. And now she's learning to ride her tricycle. And she doesn't do it very well either. And pretty soon she'll crash into the house or the basketball goal. And when we try to go over there and we try to help her, she'll just look at us and she'll go, no, shy, shy, do it herself. And I'm really concerned because pretty soon she's going to be driving. (laughs) And then she's your problem, okay, at that point. You know, folks, all of us have a drive inside of us, just like Shiloh and just like every single kid. And the reality is, is that God has placed that drive into each one of us. And He wants us to grow from it, and to flourish. He wants us to do great things uh, for Him and for His glory. But all too often, each one of us get destroyed by the killer, and the killer is called discouragement. And discouragement, folks, will eat away just like a cancer. And this morning, what I want us to look at is probably the most discouraging moment of David, who was the king, the greatest king 
of all of Israel, of the entire Old Testament, of the most discouraging season of his life. If you remember in weeks before, we talked about the fact that David was the only person in all of Scripture who was ever told he was a man after God's own heart. But even the one who was after God's own heart really battled discouragement. And there's one verse that I want us to look at and focus in on today about the amazing spiritual skill that David had to be able to overcome discouragement. But before we kind of jump into our text today, I want to help all of us kind of get up to the point where we're at when we enter into the text. Kind of the background, the context of what's been going on in David's life. I want you to know for many, many years leading up to this point, things have gone extremely well for David. Samuel, uh, kind of the Billy Graham of uh, his day, came to David and he anointed him or he called him to be the next king. The king who was in power at the time was a guy by the name of Saul. And Saul liked David so much that he brought him in to be a part of his palace. He uh, defeated this giant. Nine-foot-tall giant named Goliath. The army loved him. People were singing songs about him. And everything that David ever touched seemed to turn to gold. But as he is on his way to the palace to become king, a funny thing happened. One by one, all the wonderful things that had happened in his life began to become stripped away from him. And David begins to experience one loss after another. The first of David's losses came with his job. He loses his job. So David is this teenage shepherd boy. But over time, he gets promoted beyond that to be a a, a musician in uh, Saul's court. And then he becomes a warrior. And he doesn't just become any warrior, but he becomes the top warrior. He becomes the highest officer in all of the army. But then one day, King Saul gets jealous. He gets insanely jealous. And he throws a spear at David. And David loses his job. He loses his income. He loses his security. I mean, he went from being a warrior, from being the top spot in the army, to now being a fugitive, running away from his own country. And David would never serve in the army again. He lost his identity of who he was, and he lost his income. And some of you know what that's like. Secondly, he loses his family. He loses his family. Now, David was married to Saul's daughter, Michael. He was a part of the royal family. But out of jealousy, King Saul gets tired of all the good things that are being said about David, and he goes after him. And he goes after him in such a way that he pins him down, and somehow Michael helps him to escape, but when Michael goes to try to follow her husband, 
King Saul ordered his soldiers to take his daughter and to bring her back to the palace and to hold her captive. And he actually then gave her to another man and she married off. And David never experienced his relationship with his wife. And so he loses his job. He loses his family. And then he loses his spiritual mentor. Samuel was a spiritual mentor and David flees to a town called Ramah where he's reunited with Samuel. And he looked up to Samuel so much. I mean, just imagine that, that you go to Billy Graham's home. And if you walked into Billy Graham's home, I guarantee that you would feel safe and you would feel secure because the presence of God would be there and you would know that this was a man who was after God's own heart, someone who was connected. And David comes and he's there with Samuel. And he felt so safe. But the reality was that David wasn't safe anywhere. And Saul sends his soldiers to Ramah. And David had to take another escape. And he escapes away. But the problem is is that Samuel can't go with him because Samuel's very old. And physically, he can't do it. And so David never sees Samuel again. And then Samuel dies. So he loses his job. He loses his family. He loses his mentor. And then finally, he loses his best friend, Jonathan. From Samuel, David now runs to his best friend, Jonathan. And if you remember, Jonathan is King Saul's son. And Jonathan stands up to the king. And he says, this is wrong the way that we're dealing with David. And Saul gets mad and he throws a spear at his son. But Jonathan could not leave the palace. He wanted to honor his father and so he stays there. And so David has to run away from Jonathan. And Jonathan was no longer seen after that by David. And now he loses his best friend. So he loses his job. He loses his family. He loses his spiritual mentor. Now he loses his best friend. And then we come to our text in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1. And it says this, David then left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Now just think about this. David was expecting a palace. He was going to be the top dog. He was going to be the king. He was waiting to take the throne. He was waiting to assume power. And David had wealth, he had power, he had fame, he had a reputation, he had security. He thought for sure that he knew what his guaranteed future was going to be like. But now all of that is gone and it's all wiped away. And he has absolutely nothing. No money, no friends, no job, no wife, no mentor, no friend. And now he's running for his life. He was expecting a trip to the palace, folks, and he finds himself ending up in a cave. And there's no explanation of why. And there's no guarantee of how long he'll have to spend in this cave hiding from the king. 
So this morning, what I really want to talk to you about is about the cave. The cave is that place where you come to as a human being when all the props and all the crutches and all the support is kind of just knocked away. It's knocked out from underneath you. The cave is where you end up when your thoughts of the fact that you were going to have a great marriage and you were going to have a great family and you were going to do great things for God. And now all of a sudden, it's very clear, folks, that none of those things are happening and you feel like your dream has just died. That's when you're in the cave. And I know some of you right now. And you're in the cave. Maybe it's because you lost your job or you're dealing with financial struggles right now. Maybe you've lost a spouse because of desertion or death or the pain of divorce. Maybe you always dreamed of a particular marriage of what it would look like. And the reality is it doesn't look anything like what you thought it was. And you are so disappointed every single day because of your marriage. Maybe you've lost a mentor or a really good friend. Maybe you've been deeply disappointed by some relationship. Maybe there's a child, your child, and it's like that relationship is so torn and so overwhelming. Maybe it's with your parents. Maybe you lost some of your health or the health of someone in your family has kind of gone to the wayside. Maybe you lost a dream of what your life was going to look like and now it's gone. But for whatever reason, folks, you're in a cave. Now, some of you are not in a cave right now, but let me just tell you, sooner or later you will enter the cave. Because no matter who we are, every single one of us logs some time in the cave. And I think the hardest thing about being in the cave, in that valley of discouragement, is that you begin to wonder, maybe God has forgotten about me. Have you left me, God? Am I not good enough? Where is your mercy? Where is your goodness? Do you even listen to me anymore, God? Will I be in this cave forever? Will I die in this cave? But folks, you need to understand something else about caves this morning. And it's this, and it's our big idea. That God does some of his best work in caves. Caves are where God does some of his best work. The cave is where God can form and shape our human lives. I mean, sometimes until the props are pulled from under you and there's no crutch and there's no support, And you find out that all you have is God. It's at that point where you realize, you know what? God really is enough. God's enough. 
Well, we're not totally sure, but we think that David spent about 10 years in caves, being a fugitive, running away from Saul. He's always on the run. But eventually, we find out that David's not alone. Eventually, there are 400 of his men that join him. But let's look at how they're described, okay? So you're all alone. You're running away from the cave. And now 400 people say, man, we're going to join you. But look how they're described. In verse 2, all those who were in distress or in debt or disconnected gathered around David. Wow! That's who I want to lead, you know? 400 people who are distressed, depressed, in debt. And they're like, we're forming this community now. And eventually, as they go from cave to cave to cave, they meet some other people, and some of them get married, and some of them have children. And eventually, it kind of becomes a refugee community, and they find a village that's called uh, Ziklag. And uh, what would happen in these days is you would get your village together, you'd try to protect it, but eventually the men, the warriors, would have to leave, and they would have to go raid another town or another community to provide for themselves. And so they go out and they would raid these Philistine villages. Uh, Goliath was a Philistine, so they're still battling that. And so they go and they, they raid a village. And then when they come back to their own village, what they find is, is that it's decimated. It's been burnt out. And their kids are gone. Their wives are gone. Their possessions are gone. They have absolutely nothing. And look at me with verse 30, or chapter 30, verse 4. It says, So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. Have you ever wept like that before? I mean, you just cried so much. So much pain was going on in your life that eventually you had no more tears even to cry. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. And then it gets worse for David. It says, David's two wives had been captured. Then David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. So now these, the only people in his life now want to kill him. They want to stone him. And each one was bitter in spirit because of their sons and daughters. Their sons and daughters are taken away. Their wives are taken away. And they're like, you must be the cause, David. We're going to stone you. Now just think about that. He's a fugitive in his own country. He's on the run. He is being uh, sought after by the king of the nation. And he has no wife, he has no mentor, he has no best friend. And finally he gets this ragtag of people together, but they're all distressed and depressed and they're in debt, but they kind of hang out and he starts feeling a little bit better. And then all of a sudden they're like, we're going to kill you. And David finally, literally, has nowhere to turn. This is about the lowest point, folks, that I think you can get. But then comes one of the most powerful statements in all of Scripture in verse 6. 
It says this, But David encouraged himself in the Lord. But David encouraged himself in the Lord. I love that phrase. Now, you know, it's one thing to be encouraged by other people. That's good. It's one thing for us to come here on Sunday and we worship God together and we encourage one another. That's good. It might be good, you know, you might be encouraged if you read a book that was inspirational or if you uh, listened to a song. But when you're in a cave, folks, and there is no one around and no one cares and no one wants anything to do with you, when you turn to God, folks, He will encourage you. And when you get encouraged by God, folks, you get very strong. It's in the cave when we get strong. Not on the mountaintop. It's when we're in the cave. And we say, even when I'm in the cave, God, I'm going to turn to you. And that's when you get strong. You get very strong. And before we leave today, I want you to be able, for the rest of your life, To be able to know how you can be encouraged in the Lord. So we're going to look at this question for the rest of our time. What do I need to do to be encouraged in the Lord? What do you need to do to be encouraged in the Lord? David takes three steps. This is the first one that he takes, and I want to encourage you. It says, you must discuss your discouragement openly with God. That's what David did. He just discussed his discouragement openly with God. With God. If you want to be encouraged, you've got to begin by just being honest and saying, This is what is discouraging me, God, and this is where it's at. And uh, in Psalm 142, David does just that. It's just one example. There are many. But here's one where he does it. This one's important because it says he was writing it from the cave. And this is what it says. David says, I cried aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before Him. Before Him, I tell my trouble. Quick show of hands. How many of you know how to complain? Raise your hand. Any of you that didn't raise your hand, what do we call them, folks? Liars, that's right. We all know how to complain. Some of you probably wonder if your spiritual gift is complaining. You know what I mean? You're so good at it. Well, David says this in the psalm. Lord, I pour out my complaint to you. And interesting enough, Old Testament scholars tell us that in the psalms, there are 150 of them, there are different kinds of psalms that David wrote. There were psalms of thanksgiving. There were psalms of praise. There were psalms of wisdom. But do you know what the number one, uh, number one psalm was in all of the psalms? A psalm of lament. And that's just a fa- fancy word for a complaint. That's the number one thing that you will find in the psalms, is psalms of lament. Psalms that are complaining. These psalms sound like this. How long, O Lord? Why will you hide your face from me? How long will you not show mercy? When will you listen to my voice? This is the most common psalm there is 
in all 150 of them. And so what David does is he gets still enough before the Lord. And then at that bottom gut, painful, discouraging moment that only you and you alone know about, he releases that to God. And might I say, folks, that that takes a lot of guts to get to that point. Many people never have the courage to take this step. They never express the pain in their life to God. They just kind of stuff it down somewhere, or they mask it, and everybody else, you know, they might think everything's great, but you know where that level of discouragement and pain is at. They pretend like it's okay. They walk in here on Sunday even sometimes, and they have the church lady smile, you know. Hi. Everything's wonderful. Praise the Lord. And they can fake to everyone else, folks, but just because you fake that you don't have pain, it doesn't mean that there isn't pain and discouragement there. And it never solves anything when we hide it. It never goes away just because you hide it. And sometimes people get sucked so much into this kind of stuff that it becomes their norm. They get used to this. And you know people like this. They're people who are in chronic discouragement all the time. And when they walk around, they're sucking the life out of themselves, but they suck the life out of everybody else around them. There's a story about a farmer who was this kind of person. Just always discouraged. Never had a happy thing to say. And he was never impressed by anyone or anything. And uh, one day a guy in his town decided that he was going to try to impress him. I mean, if it was the last thing that he was going to do, he was going to impress this farmer. And so he goes out and he buys the world's greatest hunting dog. And he trains him to do amazing things. He trains him to smell a scent from miles and miles away. He trained him how to hold a point so that the dog wouldn't move at all when it found what it was looking for, for over an hour, not moving a muscle. And so one day, this guy takes this farmer... And they go out hunting together and they go to this duck blind. And a a duck blind is simply like a little uh, shed on water. And they're inside the shed and they hear some ducks flying over. And this guy gets his gun out and he shoots a duck and he hits it and the duck falls to the water. And he sends his dog out and the dog walks on water. And he walks on water all the way to the duck. He bends down, he picks it up, puts it in his mouth. He walks on water all the way back to the little shed. And the farmer turns to him and says, Your dog can't swim, can he? (laughs) You have people like that in your life, don't you? And you know what? You have a little bit of that farmer in you too. And so do I. And it is possible for human beings to never be still enough 
to ever face the deepest, darkest pain and discouragement that's there. Because we get too busy. And we don't ever really pray. And we never really get honest before God. And we never name the pain that we're feeling. But like I said earlier, folks, if you never name exactly what's going on in your life, you will never get healed. And you will just kind of go through the rest of your life with this emotional and spiritual kind of dying process until you die physically. But that is not God's will for your life. And God says to His children, He says, I want you to come to Me. I want you to come and pour out anything that's on your heart. The good, the bad, the ugly. I want you to know that the complaint department is open. You can come to Me. I won't push you away. Just come with what's exactly on your heart. And folks, this is very important for you to understand. It's not God's will for your life to live in chronic discouragement for the rest of your life. Because the important thing to know is this, folks, that God is not a God of discouragement. He's not a discouraging God. And any time that you feel discouragement in your soul, and you feel like the life is just being kind of sucked right out of you, you can be assured, folks, that when you're feeling like that, that that is not God who's doing that. Now, sometimes God allows painful things to come into our life. God sometimes convicts us of our sin. Sometimes He has pain enter us because of our own fallenness. Sometimes He challenges us to do things that are really scary. Sometimes the vision or the plan that He has for your life can feel overwhelming. But God is never a God of discouragement. And any time you experience uh, discouragement, folks, I can tell you, it is not coming from God. And if you ever want to kind of be able to assess your own spiritual life, this is the question that you'll want to ask. You'll want to ask this question. Do I find myself growing easily discouraged? It's not about how much of the Bible you read or how much you pray or how much you go to church or how many small groups you're involved in, even though all those things are important. But if you want to know where you're at in your spiritual life, you ask yourself that question. Do I find myself growing easily discouraged? Because the general rule is this, folks. The more that we walk with God, the more that we realize that He is our great shepherd and we don't have any wants and we don't have to have any fear in our life. And we don't have to be discouraged. For some of you, the greatest thing that you can do leaving from this place today is that you would be honest about the discouragement in your life and stop masking it. For some of you, the greatest thing you could do is just kind of name what that discouragement is. And then kind of rank where you're at from 1 to 10. Each day this week, just say, where am I at? Am I, where's my discouragement meter? And just kind of rank it 1 to 10. And then after you do that, folks, you just give that discouraging thing to God. But you name it. So David is honest. The second thing he does is he takes positive action. You must take some positive action. You've got to name your discouragement, and then you have to take some positive action. 
Now back to our story in verse 7. Remember again, David and his men come back and all the wives and children have been taken away. They're all alone and so this is what happens. So then David said to Abathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue the raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake and succeed in the rescue. David really knows that God can tell him what he wants him to do. And so David really wants to know, God, what do you want me to do? And so he asked the priest to bring an ephod. Now, some of you are sitting there right now and you're going, what's an ephod? In fact, can I get one of those? Can I go to Kmart? I've got some, uh, you know, decisions I ought to make. Could you bring that to me? Well, there's not a lot that we know about the ephod, except that it was an object that kind of represented a symbol of God's presence and that when priests would take it, they would focus on the will of God. And David is there and he's like, God... Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Just tell me what to do. And there's a clear answer that God gives to him. He says, David, take some action. Don't just sit there. There are things that could be done. There is a group of people that you can save, that you can lead, that you can rescue. So get off your lament and get going. Do something. And it's real important, friends, that... Some people, you need to realize this, some people get so stuck in their chronic discouragement that they never devote the time or the energy or the effort to ever move or do anything. And they never take a step of action. They just stay complaining. They just sit there waiting for someone to rescue them. Like a UFO to come down and to change your life. No one's going to change your life. You're going to change your life with the help of God. So God tells David, go! Now let me give you an example of this when it comes to discouragement in marriage. Neil Warren, who's a uh, Christian psychologist and he's an author, he writes on marriage all the time. And this is one of the things that he says about marriages that get killed. He says, what kills marriages more than anything else is a lack of hope, of discouragement. Because when hope dies, the motivation to change dies, and couples quit trying. So this is the recommendation that Neil gives to all married couples who are discouraged. He says, take some area in your marriage where you get discouraged. If you can get a 10% improvement in one 12-month period, there's going to be a huge difference because you're going to regain hope. Now, in several of his books, and several of his writings, he talks about that one of the areas of most discouragement between husbands and wives deals with the sexual part of their marriage. And most of the time, he says the reason why it is, is because there are different expectations between husbands and wives. Husbands want to have sex every night. Wives want to have sex in January. 
Now, I don't know. I'm not a clinical psychologist. But that would seem that would bring some discouragement to the marriage. Okay? Some of you are looking at me right now. Some of you women are real mean. I'm not the... I didn't do the message. Get mad at Neil. I didn't say it. I'm just the messenger, okay? Now, folks, the reality is this. That can be your marriage or that can be any area of your life, to be quite honest, that you would just commit to saying, I'm going to take one thing in my life that's not working, that I feel discouraged in, and for 12 months, I'm just going to try to get a 10% improvement on it. And I'm telling you folks, you just do that enough, and all of a sudden, your whole world kind of skyrockets. I'll be real honest with you right now. I struggle with time management. And so one of the things that I've tried to do this last year is on my Tuesday meeting that I have at 9 in the morning, because if I'm there on time, then everything goes well. I just want to be there 10%. Increase my ability to be on time by 10%. Have I made it every single time? No. But more often than not, I have. And I have created so much encouragement in my life just on that one small thing, a bump of just... 10% will give you hope. So, the reality is, whatever it is in your life, 10% can create a huge, a huge bump. Now, here's the next thing. So David comes and he shares his discouragement. And then secondly, he also shares with him his... um, Ability to say, I'm going to take some action. And so, whatever you want to identify as your thing that you're going to work on, just write that down. And then try to create a 10% increase on that. God's calling you folks, though, to take some action. So, you name the discouragement, you take action, and finally, you must find your ultimate refuge in God. You must find your ultimate refuge in God. God. You know that word refuge is a word that David uses multiple times in the Psalms. And in Psalm 18, it's just one of those times, but this is what he says. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take, what's it say? Refuge. And this is what I mean from refuge. Sometimes when you're in the cave, there is no human action that you can take to get you out of the cave. Sometimes it's something that you can't fix or you can't control. And all you can do in the midst of that, folks, is to trust God. When you take refuge in Him, it means that you become immersed in His presence. That you become convinced of His faithfulness. That you become devoted to His Lordship. And when you're in the cave, folks, when you're in the cave, you just finally realize that God is going to hold on to me. That when you believe that He's your refuge, that He holds on. He never lets go. God, no matter what, then you make the commitment that I will not let go of you. 
Because I don't find my refuge in job security. I don't find it in financial security. I don't find it in relational security. God, I find my refuge in you. And no matter what, I'm going to hang on to you. If everything else gets stripped away, God, I'm still going to hang on to you. I've been thinking about uh, a friend of mine this past week who understands so much about what a cave experience looks like and feels like. I've known him uh, since I was in high school. We went to church uh, together over in Anderson. And he was one of the funniest guys I ever met. He was one of those kind of guys, you ever have one of these guys, you never know what's going to come out of their mouth. You have a friend like that? You're kind of nervous, actually. You know what I mean? Like you get in a circle and you just don't know. And it may be something that everyone laughs at, or it might be so crude and rude that you'll say, he's no longer my friend, you know? And that's kind of the way this guy is. And uh, after he graduated from college, he got a job as an accountant. He married a a beautiful woman and his wife, Amy. And they enjoyed a few years as newlyweds, and then they started uh, to have a family, and they had their first son. Uh, Andy was born to them. They were so excited. And then they tried to have another child, and then they had seven miscarriages. And they were in a cave. And they tried all the fertilization things to try to make things happen. Nothing worked. And they finally just kind of came to a point where that was it. And it was such a cave moment for he and his wife. And then somehow, out of the blue, they, they got pregnant. And uh, they had three kids, like, all right in a row. Craig and Jeff and Jamie. He said, man, we got this thing heated up and we just couldn't stop, you know. Wasn't working at all, and then all of a sudden it just like a baby factory, you know. And they kind of had their ups and downs uh, with these four kids, and uh, some marriage stuff came up, and they felt like they were in a cave, and man, marriage was kind of tough. And then they found out their son Craig came down with this rare skin disease in which it limited pretty much everything in his life. He couldn't be out in the sun. He couldn't eat hardly anything at all. They went to all these different clinics, you know, to try to find something out. Couldn't find anything. It was such a cave for him because now all of a sudden it was affecting, the health was affecting their family. But eventually they kind of found something that worked and he was uh, middle school and uh, they found something and his life kind of went normal. And during this whole time, during, uh, you know, the, the miscarriages, during uh, their marriage issues, during the, the health problems of their son, I just saw my friend, he just would take refuge in God. A little over uh, a year ago, I got a phone call from him, and he, he was telling me how his uh, youngest son, Jeff, um, had really been struggling, and he was like, I'm moving out, and he moved out for a couple of days, and you can just hear the pain of a father when a child moves out you know, before they get out of high school and just all the tension that was kind of there. And uh, he just said, I just feel like, you know, man, I just, I just can't get it through to him. And it, I'm sure it just felt like a cave experience. But uh, 
they got together and they worked on some stuff and Jeff just turned around big time and, and things were going real great and um, he was set up to be the valedictorian of his class and great musician, good singer. And last July 4th, my family and I were on our way to Branson, Missouri, and we get a phone call. And Tom said that Jeff had died in his sleep. He was one of those kids, you know, and we have one here that went through that as well, but he died in his sleep. His uh, brother, Craig, at the Daleville graduation, he stood up and spoke. And I just think, man, that family, they've gone through so much. And my friend Tom, he has been in a cave. And uh, I just email him or text him every once in a while and I was talking to him one day and he said this year has been so hard but I'll tell you what the presence of God has never been greater in my life and the goodness that I see of God in our family has never been so good and I'm just dumbfounded by that I really am. He uh, posted on Jeff's Facebook wall on uh, Wednesday. and He said, Jeff, happy one year eternal birthday. We will join you soon. We talk about you all the time. We love you. Folks, some of you are in a cave right now, and there's no way out of it. You can't do some human action to get out of it. And your cave may not be what Tom's going through, but you have a cave nonetheless, and you're struggling. And if you're not in a cave right now, I just want to tell you, eventually you will be. All of us logged some time in caves, folks, and that's why the refuge of God being holding on to Him at all times is so imperative. But when you're in the cave, all you can do is find your refuge in God. Because God understands, folks, what it's like to be in caves. Because He's been there. And I want to tell you something. That Jesus suffered like you do. Jesus suffered for you. The son of David lost his position as teacher. He lost his safety. He lost his friends. All of his friends walked away at the cross. He was threatened by enemies. He eventually died upon a cross. But then the evil one made a mistake. Do you remember where they buried Jesus at? Where did they bury him? 
in a cave. And they thought that they got to the end of him, but they didn't know that God does some of his best works in caves. Caves are where God resurrects things. When everything's dead and it looks like it's totally hopeless, it's at that moment that God meets us in our cave and He gives us resurrection power. So I just want you to know today, in this summer experience of a lot of heat, if you're in a cave today or next week or next month or next year, You hang on to the ultimate refuge in God. Because just as God loved David in the cave, He will love you. Let's stand for closing prayer. God, we know that you do some of your best work in caves. And God, we know that even if no one else knows in this place, that you know who's in a cave right now. You know what's in their heart. You know what's going on with them. And we thank you, God, that when we're in our caves, that you don't leave us. You don't forsake us. You don't walk away. That you are a God of hope and not a God of discouragement. That you are a God of resurrection and not death. God, thank you that we can always find our encouragement in you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. If the prayer team will come up, if you have prayer for anything, they'd love to pray with you. And uh, have a great week.